Welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast. If you love tennis and want to improve your game, this podcast is for you. Whether it's technique, strategy, equipment, or the mental game, tennis professional Ian Westerman is here to make you a better player. And now, here's Ian. Hi, and welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, expert tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. Today's episode of the Essential Tennis Podcast is brought to you by protranscript.com and tennistours.com. Today, before we get started, I want to tell you guys about something I'm doing with Will of fuzzyyellowballs.com, which, by the way, is an excellent source for tennis instruction, uh, all, all in video format. And they just started putting out some amazing videos from Indian Wells. So go check out his website if you haven't already. Uh, but he and I, during the men's final of the Sony Ericsson Open, which is in Miami, being played right now, he and I are going to be doing a live webcast, and we're going to be doing commentary during the men's final of the Sony Ericsson Open. We did this during the Australian Open final. It was a lot of fun, and we're looking forward to doing it again. So you can watch us do that live. It's going to be a video commentary. Watch us do that live during the, uh, again, the men's final, but just by going to fuzzyyellowballs.com and the stream is going to be up on his website. I think it's going to be up on essentialtennis.com as well, but I'm not positive on that, on that yet. So definitely check us both out. All right, let's go ahead and get to today's show. Sit back, relax, and get ready for some great tennis instruction. My guest today on the Essential Tennis Podcast is past teammate, and uh, Jason and I went to college together as well, uh, but Jason Cole is our guest today, who's been on the show before, but it's been a little while. J- Jason, welcome back to the show. Thanks, buddy. Good to be here. Yeah, it's nice to have you back. It's, uh, it's a shame that we kind of seem to go long periods of time before having you back on, but I know that you have a busy schedule, what with your golf game and all. Hey, Mondays are for golf. <laughs> I, it's hard to avoid that. I, I can't get away from that. No problem. I understand. It's always good to get away from tennis uh, at least a little bit during the week and, and kind of think about other stuff. Uh, no doubt. Well, we've got three listener questions that we're going to be talking about today. None of them really having to do a lot about technique, but just kind of topics that I thought Jason and I could have good conversations about and hopefully help you guys out and, and give you some ideas on how you can improve in these various parts of tennis. And our, our first question today comes from Thomas in Germany, and he puts himself down as a 4.0 player. Thomas wrote and said, I have a question. How far up should you actually hold your racket? Where is the butt cap supposed to be? On the heel pad, between the heel pad and the index knuckle, or even somewhere else? Thanks a lot, Thomas. Uh, well, J- Jason, I'll kind of throw that over to you first, and we'll see what kind of thoughts you have on that, and I'll put in my two cents, too. What do you think? Uh, well, I have two thoughts. The first one is whatever feels comfortable, but the second one is, and probably more importantly, uh, you're using the one adult racket for a reason, to give yourself extra length. Uh, most players have a bit of their hand even off the racket when hitting with it, uh, I'm not sure that I've seen too many people at all play with their entire hand up above the, the butt cap of the racket. Um, so I would say that 
if things are going awry, you might decide to, uh, to choke up just a bit, but I would do that as a last resort. Try and use the advantage of, uh, of the longer record as much as you can. Yeah, a lot of times choking up a little bit can kind of give players a feel that they're in better control of what the racket is doing. And, and that's true because it's, it's a shorter tool at that point. And so it kind of allows you to, to move it around more easily. However, what Jason is saying is absolutely, absolutely correct. When you use a, a shorter racket, you've got less leverage, essentially. You have less force over the ball uh, when you accelerate the racket and, and swing towards it. And so um, I agree. I think probably the, the lower the better as long as it's comfortable, as Jason also said. I think the exception to this may be a two-handed backhand. Um, I, I think in general, two-handed backhand players tend to be a little bit higher up with their bottom hand as compared to a forehand where, as you said, Jason, uh, essentially every good you know, upper-level player that I've seen hit a forehand, the, the heel of the hand is uh, mostly off the racket completely. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? I know that you have a two-handed backhand. You, is your bottom hand, your, your right hand, a little higher on your backhand than, than it is on your forehand? You know, maybe just a little bit, but not really, because two-handers are already giving up uh, the extra reach because they're primarily hitting the left-handed forehand. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the more you give up, I mean, you you don't want to handicap yourself. In my opinion, two-handed backhands are far superior than one-handed. But, uh, you know, if you start using a ping-pong paddle, you're really giving up a little bit too much. <laughs> so I, I don't think that'd be necessary, if anything. You know, if if you can, have that left hand down low on the two-handed backhand so that you're still getting the reach. Okay. Well, I, I think that more or less wraps up that topic. Anything else to talk about as it pertains to that? Not really. I mean, the, the leverage and the distance is there for a reason. And, you know, that's why there was such a big deal made when long body rackets came out because it did give you an advantage. So it'd be kind of silly to steal that from yourself. All right. Well, Thomas, hopefully that's helpful to you. So basically what Jason and I are saying is is allow your hand to go down on the racket, maybe even off a little bit at the bottom, as long as it's comfortable to you. Um, I, I, I like what Jason said. Maybe if you're ha- having uh, a period of time where a, a certain stroke is really off, maybe choke up a little bit to give yourself some more control and kind of get back into it again. But... The longer the the racket that you have, the more leverage you're going to get. So uh, I like how Jason is kind of saying, don't don't cheat yourself and choke up too much. All right, let's move on to Jason in Illinois, who's a 3.5 player. And and this is going to be an interesting tactical discussion having to do with doubles and mixed doubles specifically. It's got a little bit longer of a question, uh, so bear with me here for a second. He wrote and said, my wife and I recently played in a mixed doubles tournament I'm a 3.5 level, and my wife is probably around a 3.0. We did well, advancing to the semis before losing in two close sets. However, I found mixed doubles to be both frustrating and maddening, as our opponents continually found ways to hit only to my wife. She did well and held her own, hitting back five or six volleys in a row on a few points, but eventually got worn down. I found myself standing there as a spectator during most points, looking for an opportunity to jump in and poach, but couldn't as my wife doesn't hit very hard, 
leaving my side of the court exposed when I try to poach. In one match, we tried eye formation and forced them to hit returns down the line against my wife's serve, giving me a better chance to poach. Out of frustration, I also started blasting returns at the net player, which made it harder for them to hit a good reply towards my wife. These two tactics help us win a match, but wondering if there are any other strategies we could employ. During the entire tournament, I think my wife hit four times as many shots as I did, and probably five times as many in the semifinal that we lost. I believe we could have won if I could have found a way to contribute more during the match. I think that's a, a really good question, well thought out, and it sounds like Jason and his wife did try a couple different variations on their their strategy and, and tactics to, to try to make things a little bit more even, but this is a great question, not only for, for mixed doubles, but for doubles in general, when you are playing with somebody who's significantly weaker than you are, or when you're the person who's kind of the weakest on the courts and your opponents are, are trying to pick on you. So, Jason, what are your, your initial thoughts here? What, what could they have done to, to maybe have a little more advantage out there on the court? Uh, okay, well, I have a few first things. When you're playing regular doubles as opposed to mixed, it's a lot harder to see one man and say, oh, he's probably weaker than the other. Uh, but when you step onto the court for mixed doubles, everybody just assumes that the woman is weaker, whether that's true or not. Uh, so definitely, you know, I would say good strategy by your opponents. They should be hitting to your wife, who is weaker. Uh, good, good job by your wife making four or five volleys. Yeah. Uh, but you definitely need to be poaching more. And this is something that I really stress in all doubles. Um, but in mixed doubles, you really just can't, can't avoid it. And that they're hitting to your wife, assuming they know where she is standing. You can't have her standing there. You know, she's got to be moving or you've got to be moving in front to make it a lot smaller of a target. If you camp out on your side and she's camping out on her side, then any 3-0 level player should be able to hit it to her repeatedly. Uh, and that, you know, that just shouldn't be the case. If you watch professional level um, mixed doubles, the woman is always moving. The man's always cutting in front of the woman. Um you know, there just aren't rallies where it's four or five shots by the woman in a row. And that's, that's something that through better footwork and better uh, strategy up at net, you could really get away from. Have her not only, you said you did the eye formation, which is good, but don't always force them to hit it down the line. You, you know, she can go down the line, she can go cross court. They should have a 50-50 guess as to where they're returning, uh, whether it's going to her or you. And the same should be happening when she's serving, when you're serving. It really doesn't matter. Yeah, and Jason said that he he tried to poach, or or at least thought about it. However, he was really worried about leaving the court open behind him. And Jason, to advance as a doubles player, this is a, a fear that eventually you're going to have to get rid of, is, is being worried about being caught uh, down the line. And especially when you're trying to kind of make up for a partner who's weaker, whether it's uh, your, your wife who happens to be a lower level than you or anybody else for that matter, when you're the net player and your, your partner is back, you need, or, or starting back, uh, you need to play a really strong supportive role up there as the net player. And you really should be dictating play uh, as the net player. And Jason mentioned uh, making the returner essentially have to guess 
and, and kind of try to figure out, all right, well, where am I going to have to hit this return in order to avoid Jason up there at the net? Because he's, I don't know where the heck he's going on this point. And you want to disrupt that returner or that, that server as much as possible and just make things miserable for them. And that means that you probably will get caught a, a handful of times with them hitting down the line, but that's a tougher shot to hit anyway. Um, and so you should really be disrupting and, and making their life miserable <laughs> as much as you can. And uh, it kind of takes some trust in yourself and uh, it takes confidence in yourself to kind of just go and, and leave your, your comfort zone and cut over to your, your wife's side of the courts or whoever else you're playing with. But it's absolutely something you should get comfortable with. Well, you should also be giving signals. So, you know, if I'm yeah. standing at net and I tell you I'm going to poach, if they hit the ball down the line, you'd, you'd better be there. You knew I was poaching, and I'm going to be across the center. So, you know, if you're not getting to cover that line, you're, you're failing there. It shouldn't just be that, oh, they beat me down the line, I lose now. <laughs> you, know, that's, you can feel free to be a maverick and give it that shot every once in a while, but that, there's no way you should just be getting beat repeatedly down the line because your wife or, or whoever else should, should be there. They know it's coming. So. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. You guys should be talking between every single point and and working these things out. Um, sometimes maybe you'll plan to to stay, and the return is going to be within your reach. In which case, you should just go uh, and kind of be the. I like I use the word maverick there, uh, Jason. That's solid. Um, and so sometimes you have the opportunity to just cross, and it wasn't planned. Uh, but you guys should also be planning those types of of switches and movements all the time so that you really keep your opponents guessing. Um, something else I had thought of, Jason, is, is maybe playing double back. Uh, what do you think about that? I mean, I inherently hate that idea. Uh, <laughs> if you're playing somebody who's decent at, at net, then you're really putting yourself at a disadvantage because if you play double back, you cannot step in front of your wife. That's ridiculous. So it's, so it's really easy just to get the ball to her. Uh, that's assuming on a serve. On a return, if you're playing double back because somebody's really crushing serves at your wife and she can't handle it, that's certainly more acceptable to try and get in the point. But, but again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't just go to that. And most women, uh, obviously, I, I don't know Jason's wife, most women are pretty capable returners. That's usually not where their weakness lies. Um, so it's not something I love. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not something that would be my first choice either. You know how much I love to come to the net. But I guess if all else fails, Jason, you could try that and essentially just play defense uh, and maybe play for hopefully a good lob hit by one of you two or a well-hit ground stroke that gets down low to your opponents and, and gives you guys a chance to move back in together. But yeah, I think that should kind of be a last, uh, uh, you know, last-ditch effort, more or less, uh, to just give up well, the net and go back. Well, you you do have another excellent point, though, in that it does depend on the level. In that, sure. not a lot of three o three five women can put overheads away. So if you start back and just start lobbing the woman, uh, you know that's it, it's really tough for three o to three five women to put overheads away consistently. So that's that's not a terrible strategy. Usually, though, you know, as as you get a little better and the women get a little better. Uh, can't rely on that quite as much, but sure. but you still can, still can use it. 
And what about uh, just one other thing I had down, Jason, as far as an idea of what they could do better. Um, what about picking out the weaker player on, on the other side of the court and, and having a plan between the, the both of them, both Jason and his wife, that, listen, anytime we have a choice with a shot to hit to one player or the other, assuming that they're, they're kind of in equal uh, positions on the court in terms of being offensive or in a defensive position, um, do you think they should have been directing as many shots as possible towards the weaker player on the other side to kind of give them a taste of their own medicine? Without question. I mean, in mixed doubles is women-to-women rallies until the man can step over and do something. I mean, that's uh, not, not meaning to sound condescending, but that is how it should go. There's no way that any woman should try and take on the man unless it's well, well determined that that man is weaker than his partner. Um, but that's, that's really not often the case. And so it should go, you know, man hits it to the woman, woman pops it to the woman, and then they rally it out until, until somebody can do something a little bit better. Um, but yeah, absolutely. His wife should just pick out their, the female on their team and assuming she's not trying a really difficult shot, put it over to her every time. In all fa- in all fairness to the ladies out there, I would like to point out that uh, what what you're describing definitely takes place more often at upper level, you know, high high highly competitive kind of tournaments, you know, five zero and above uh, type level, um, where it's kind of a given that the two women are are the weaker of the two players. Um, I mean, Jason's describing himself as a three five, his wife is a three zero, and at the club level, um, I mean, having a man and a woman on the court. Uh, I guess in general you could say that the man should be stronger, but it doesn't always necessarily mean that when you're playing a club match. Yeah, that's true. I guess I'm just uh, just making that inference. If your situation is reversed, then uh, then do what I'm saying in reverse, I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, any other uh, any other thoughts or, or ideas on that situation, Jason? Uh, no, I mean, the only tough thing is if you're the guy picking on their women over and over is, is a really morally tricky thing to do for sure. Um, but your wife should have no problem doing that and, and she needs to, if you want to be successful. Yeah, let's, uh, that's an interesting topic. Let's talk about that briefly. What are, I mean, is there, um, kind of an unwritten, uh, rule or, uh, um, you know, you said moral, uh, you know, obligation uh, for for the man to not hit at the woman a lot, or what have you noticed across different levels? I guess ranging from club all the way up through uh, professional uh, mixed doubles. Is there are there unwritten rules, or is it completely fair game uh, to to just go towards the the weaker player if it happens to be the woman? You know that I want to say there's unwritten rules, but they should get broken a lot. Yeah, um, you know, I've I've played a several prize money tournaments, and I had a really strong uh, partner. She was a national champion a couple of years in a row, um, but she still just got picked on left and right by certain teams, and, um, you know, that's, it, it depends on how bad the guy on the other team wants to, wants to win in a lot of cases. So I, I guess there's not really unwritten rules. Obviously, if you have a absolute put away and she turns her back you shouldn't try and hit her but uh <laughs> unfortunately other than that most people don't seem to care which is not how i feel but uh seems the case 
Well, my my thoughts are personally is that at the club level, you know, if you're if you're out playing at your local club or at your local park, you know, public uh, courts, um, I don't think that's the time or the place to really make one person feel really singled out and abused <laughs> on the court. I just don't think it's worth getting people angry over. Uh, and some people, uh, you know, there's some women out there who don't care. And and they're going to say, you know what, if my partner is stronger than me, then absolutely, you should be hitting at me. Uh, but other times, uh, they're not going to appreciate that. And I think unless you have a prior knowledge of your opponents, and you know that the uh, the, the woman is okay with it, I think that in a recreational match, it's not something that is a good idea. It's just nothing good is going to come of it, essentially. Uh, maybe once in a while they're not going to mind, but the times when they do mind, you're definitely going to not make any friends out there. Um, however, in, in like a prize money tournament, I'm actually a little, a little surprised to hear you uh, think that there still should be an unwritten rule there, Jason. And like, uh, like you were talking about playing actually for, for money. I mean, isn't that just kind of good tactics to go towards somebody who who's maybe a little weaker on the other team? You know, it, I guess it is. Um, and there was a couple times when there was several thousand dollars on the line. I, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. And uh, really? I would say that probably seventy <laughs> percent of the guys out there are in the same boat where they just, you know, you'll you'll hit to the woman, you'll go for the right shot, but you you won't just abuse her like like we're speaking of. Uh, and, and then there's probably 25 to 30% of the guys who just don't care. And, uh, and I can tell you that my partner, although she was a phenomenal tennis player, absolutely hated those guys who just went to her with every single ball, no matter what. They absolutely did not. And that didn't go over well. Um, you know what? I, I think that's probably a really important uh, distinction to make is that there, there are times and and most doubles uh, points where uh, a certain player who's in a in a position of offense and has the opportunity to to do something offensive with the ball, um, there's always going to be situations where tactically it just makes the most sense to go in X place on the court, regardless of who's standing there. Uh, like if you have an overhead or an easy volley, and you have the choice between a player behind the baseline and a player who's on the service line. Whether it's the man or, or, or the woman, it just makes sense to go in the direction of the person who's closer to you. Not to hit at them, but you know, to, to hit towards the person who, who has the least amount of time to react. Um, and so I think it's important to point out there, that there's a difference between going towards the woman in that situation and just going towards the woman on every single ball possible. <laughs> and just like overtly, uh, and I guess kind of just being a dick about it. Um, I mean, there's a big difference between those two things, isn't there? A huge difference, yeah. I mean, I've I've definitely hit around and at my fair share of women, but it's with balls that make sense. It's not every single yeah. return. It's not every single volley. It's not every single overhead. You know, it's it's more towards points that make sense. And obviously, I was I'm there with some strategy and trying to win. So it's not like I'm picking on the guy. Um, but yeah, there's a big difference between hitting 97 percent of your shots to one person, no matter <laughs> what. And uh, and just being smart. Okay. So. All right. Well, good discussion. And that's the this is the first time actually that a a mixed doubles question has come up on the podcast. So um, I, I wanted to kind of get that out in the air a little bit. And uh, I'm I'd be curious to see what what listeners think about that. S- send me uh, send me an email this week, guys, and tell me what your opinions are on uh, I guess what the protocol should be in in those situations. 
Now, before we get to our last question, I want to tell you guys briefly about our sponsor of the Essential Tennis Podcast, and that is TennisTours.com. Since 1987, they've been putting together ticket packages to professional tennis events, including all of the Grand Slams and most of the ATP 1000 events. If you're going to watch professional players play, whether it's WTA or ATP, which is an amazing experience, please check out TennisTours.com to see what they offer. And very often for most of these events, they offer lots of different options in terms of the quality of seats. You can get luxury suites, you can get individual tickets, grounds passes, all kinds of different options as far as exactly how close you want to get to the action. And they also offer packages along with hotels and accommodations. uh, So you can get everything in one place. Now, if you use the promotional promotional code ESSENTIAL as you check out, that's ESSENTIAL with a capital E, you'll receive a $25 discount off your purchase. So please show them your appreciation for their sponsorship of the Essential Tennis Podcast by purchasing your tickets through them the next time you go to a professional event. And they have tickets for the Sony Ericsson Open, if you guys happen to be heading out there to see them play. Also the French Open and all kinds of other different events. So again, TennisTours.com, use the promotional code ESSENTIAL when you check out with a capital E. And I thank them very much for their support of the Essential Tennis Podcast. Um, Now we've got one more question to get to, uh, so let's shift gears a little bit. And this comes from Adrian in the Philippines. He's a 3.5 player. He wrote to me and said, basically, I don't know what kind of serve I should be practicing. I already have reliable, moderately paced ground strokes and can place them, but I'm struggling with my serve. I'm five foot seven tall and I can't do flat serves. I'm now trying to put more pace on my slice serve, which is my best first serve now in terms of reliability, although it doesn't go in as much as I would like it to. All in all, I would very much appreciate your advice on how I should progress with my serve practice. For now, I am just looking for a decent first and second serve to get me through my matches. Uh, so what do you think about that, Jason? Uh, well, a couple things, I guess, pop into my head. For one, saying that you can't do flat serves, i, I got to wonder why. Um, I agree. Is it a, a... I just can't think of a good reason. You know, if your arm hurts, then that means you're doing it wrong. Um you know, I can't think of a good reason that you could say you can't do flat serves other than you don't know how, and you should probably check out, uh, you know, check out the website a bit and learn to pronate your wrist and get a flat serve because those are really, really quite important. Um, wouldn't you say, Ian? Yeah, absolutely. Um, although, on the other side of the coin, I would say that at his level, in my opinion, typically I'm trying to get students to learn how to have a good, reliable I guess, aggressive spin serve first that they can really be confident with and accelerate at. But eventually, having a flat serve is definitely something that you guys listening are going to want to develop at some points. And and uh, Adrian throws in there his height, and I think he's kind of using that as his reason. He says he's five foot seven and can't do flat serves. And that's, Adrian, that's not an excuse for not having a flat serve. I've, I've known plenty of people shorter than you uh, who have had a good flat serve. Um, so that's not a reason why it has more to do with mechanics and technique, like what Jason was talking about. Um, but that being said, I think he should probably develop his spin serve first. Um, what do you think about that, Jason? Yeah, well, I, 
you know, I kind of tend to go maybe a different way than most people when, when I try and teach people serves in that I like them to try to figure out how they're manipulating the ball more mm-hmm. so than potentially making the ball. Um, so he already knows how to hit his slice serve, so he's hitting around the right side of the ball just fine. You know, he should be able to pronate the wrist over and hit through the middle of the ball, and then he should be able to drop the racket head down and hit up with the side of his racket over the ball for a kick. Uh, I traditionally will teach people all three serves at the same time so that when they hit something, they can feel what they did, you know, whether it's on purpose or accident, and then, and then progress from there. And, and it's a much, uh, in my opinion, it's way easier to learn that way than just trying to hit one serve and, and figuring it out from there. Um, so my, I guess my advice would be, figure out how you're manipulating the ball, watch the way it bounces, listen to the sound that it makes, check out how hard it is. I mean, all of those are clues as to what just happened. Uh, and then and then figure out ways to manipulate your racket differently to create all three serves. And for sure, uh, your height means nothing as far as, as not being able to hit a flat serve. Yeah, there, there was a player, uh, when Jason and I were at Ferris State, there was a, a player who played on the women's team and her nickname was five one, which was her height. Uh, and she had a, she had a pretty big serve, uh, for as far as, uh, the women's team was concerned, uh, for sure. I think she, she had one of the better uh, serves on the team. Um, and so her height did not hold her back at all. Uh, and I'm able to hit a pretty decent flat serve, uh, on my knees <laughs> as well. Uh, so yeah, the height definitely doesn't have a whole lot to do with it. Yeah. So I, you know, if, if I was teaching somebody and he had a slice serve and wanted to learn others, the big thing I would try and make points of is just move your racket around the ball and hit it differently and then figure out what spin you've just created and, and move on that way. I mean, he should. There's just no good reason that he can't teach himself how to hit six serves via watching videos and, and reading and, uh, and just paying attention to what's, what he's done to the ball. All right, good stuff. Well, with that, we're going to wrap things up. And I want to thank the people who have submitted questions for today's show. Adrian in the Philippines, Jason in Illinois, USA, and Thomas in Germany. Nice, uh, diverse group of people. I, I, it's always cool to hear questions from all uh, different parts of the world. And uh, if you're listening and, and would like to have one of your questions featured on the show, you can always send me an email at ian at essentialtennis.com. Or on the podcast page at EssentialTennis.com, there's a a form that you guys can fill out to submit a question also. Uh, But Jason, I want to thank you very much for your time. Thank you for for talking with me about these topics. And uh, me and my listeners both appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me. You bet. I hope to see uh, more of you around the forums. I hope to see you on the golf course. Ah, touche. <laughs> yeah, man, sometime soon we'll, we'll definitely have to meet up and play. All right. All right. That's it for today's episode of the Essential Tennis Podcast. Thank you very much for joining Jason and myself. Hopefully you enjoyed today's show. And in wrapping up, I'd like to do a couple of shout-outs here to people who donated over last week. First of all, Toshi in Maryland 
donated $20 to Essential Tennis. Thank you, Toshi. Patrick in Nebraska donated $10. Shelly in New Mexico made her $10 monthly subscription donation. And John in New Mexico made his $5 monthly subscription donation. So thank you to all four of you very much. I appreciate your support. And Toshi in Maryland, I'm going to be sending you an Essential Tennis shirt free of charge for being the top donator of last week. Thank you very much. Now, if you are listening and the Essential Tennis Podcast has helped improve your tennis game, please consider making a donation. Any amount is always helpful. And each week, the top donator gets a free Essential Tennis t-shirt. Just go to EssentialTennis.com, and on the front page in the lower right, there's a button that says Donate. So check that out. All right, that does it for this week. Thanks very much, everybody. Take care, and good luck with your tennis. 